this episode, I talked with Frisky Fox and Magnus Ironroot of DeFi Kingdoms, which is a blockchain game, and Brian Pellegrino and Irene Wu of Layer Zero, an interoperability protocol, and returning guests to GM Radio. We discussed their recent integration, the significance of blockchains for gaming, how Layer Zero takes games cross-chain, their new omni-chain fungible and non-fungible token standards, gas abstraction, community governance, lessons from 2022, on-chain randomness, and much more. We also touched on the criticism of Layer Zero by another interoperability project, Nomad. So give it a listen and let me know what you think. You can always contact us on Twitter at coinpost underscore global, which is also where you can join these spaces live. All right, I hope you enjoy this one. GM. 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 GM Radio. GM, everyone. Welcome back to GM Radio, CoinPost's Twitter space and podcast series interviewing the most meaningful projects in crypto. I'm your host, Bradley Lowen, and today I'm joined by Frisky Fox and Magnus Ironroot of DeFi Kingdoms and Brian Pellegrino and Irene Wu of Layer Zero. Now, DeFi Kingdoms is a fantasy RPG game on multiple blockchains, and Layer Zero is a blockchain interoperability protocol. Uh, so we're going to be talking about their recent integration and much more. GM folks, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, thanks for having us. Likewise, excited to be here. Thank you. So I thought we would start with just some uh, introductions. So if you could uh, tell us who you are and uh, also your gaming background, I thought that would be interesting to hear. Uh, maybe starting with uh, Frisky Fox. Yeah, so I'm Frisky Fox. I'm the founder of DeFi Kingdoms, and I currently work at Kingdom Studios. Uh, we are the company that is creating... Uh, all of the like new features and things for that project. And uh, Magnus Ironroot here is the Solidity director, so I work pretty closely with him. I also do Solidity um, along with a bunch of other just random things. But excited to be here in this space. Um, I've been playing games for a long time, uh, since I was a kid, really. And I always had a dream that I would grow up and create games. And, uh, you know, I've sort of worked in like software for many, many years, managed a lot of teams and uh, started like a bunch of companies. But this is uh, my first real foray into seriously trying to make games. And um, I have a very strong like software uh, experience, but I haven't got a ton of experience with games. So we have a lot of other people that are really good at that. And I sort of try to focus more on the blockchain and the tech and have them do all the art and the amazing uh, sort of like mechanics and things for our game. So I can't speak a ton to that, but I do love games and I'm really, really happy to be making games, especially on the blockchain, which I see as easily like the future where everything is heading um, with like metaverse and ownership of your assets in game and in game economies and things. And that's what really excites me. So, uh, that's me. I'll hand the mic over to Magnus, uh, for him to introduce himself as well. Hey everyone. Um, so I'm Magnus Ironroot. Um, I'm the solidity director at kingdom studios as Fox mentioned. Um, I primarily, uh, in my day to day role, I'm uh, building smart contracts, uh, and maintaining those for DeFi kingdoms. Um, I also contribute to running DFK chain as well. Um, as far as my gaming background, um, I've been playing games the majority of my life. Um, I'm a big fan of RPGs, uh, probably put the most time in the World of Warcraft, uh, definitely up there with the top. I also like ones like uh, Skyrim and, and The Witcher. Um, and it, it was also a big dream of mine to, to build games. Um, I uh, am kind of traditionally a software developer as well, um, and I, I guess I never would have imagined that I uh, would come in through the, the blockchain kind of uh, Web3 side of things. I always thought it would be more 
uh, building games in Unity and whatnot. So uh, it's it's been a, a really good experience to uh, build some uh, cool, innovative things uh, with smart contracts on DFK Chain and, uh, and Clayton. How about you, Brian? Happy, ha yeah, happy, happy to give mine. Uh, I, I'm not building games for a living, um, although it was actually always a, a childhood dream of mine. So I grew up playing a ton, ton, ton of video games. Um, I was on Team USA for Quake when I was young, probably like 13 years old. Uh, so really, really competitive in Quake 2. Um, Put an ungodly amount of hours into, into EverQuest and a lot of early RPGs. Uh, ended up playing poker professionally for a long time. Probably have like 10,000 hours in Heroes of New Earth and Dota 2. So uh, played way too many games lifetime. Uh, love them. Have always loved them. Uh, always been a big fan. Um, and despite building infrastructure now and just enjoying uh, what I'm doing in terms of solving those sorts of problems, I think the early parts of games really, really got me into just like challenging things and solving hard problems. And uh, I've always been pretty obsessive about it. So big, big fan. Hey, uh, could I just sneak in a couple? I forgot to mention any games that I play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, go for um, Terraria. I love Terraria. I've, I've sunk so many hundreds and hundreds of hours into that game. Um, I like Final Fantasy. I think Final Fantasy VI, actually three here in like the U.S., um, as it was called, on the Super Nintendo. That was my first real foray into RPGs, and I instantly fell in love with it. And I think you'll see some of the inspiration of that in our game here as well. Um, and then, of course, like Final Fantasy XI Online, Final Fantasy XIV. Uh, huge fan of the entire series. And then Diablo, StarCraft, all of the Blizzard titles. Yeah, that's me. T tactics fan final fantasy tactics anybody oh yeah definitely love it i have to confess i am not much of a gamer so i'm gonna be way out of my league in this conversation but uh hopefully hopefully i can hang um we're also we're trying to get irene up as a speaker so uh hopefully we'll be able to do that quickly but uh let's start with DeFi kingdoms maybe uh fox and magnus if you could give us uh, an overview of the game, and I thought maybe as a as a jumping off point, um, I uh, so looking into the game. Well, I guess uh, starting with crypto gaming in general, it seems like a lot of projects are uh, there. Well, so they come out with a, a really nice um, trailer to start with, a super nice graphics, and uh, their message is kind of, hey, uh, those AAA games that you're used to playing, we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to give you that same experience just on a blockchain or with uh, with tokens, that kind of thing. Whereas it seemed to me like your approach was more like uh, like targeting uh, crypto native people, first of all, saying like, hey, crypto degens, hey, yield farmers. How about if you uh, do the yield farming that you're used to, but in a, like a more gamified context? Is that a, is that a fair way to, to think about your um, like where you your your origin story? Um, and then maybe if you could tell us uh, about DeFi Kingdoms. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think that's entirely fair. Um, basically, you see a lot of games out there that are uh, having this concept of like NFTs for your in-game assets that you can earn in-game and then they'll mint it for you on the blockchain. You can actually own it. And I think that's awesome. I think it's a really cool use case and you'll probably see more of that in the future. Um, the inspiration for this project um, really came about because, I mean, 
in 2020 there was the explosion of like the uh, of like uniswap and sushi swap and then everything swap and everyone was like starting to get involved and i had a lot of my friends and family that would ask me like what is this all about because i was a little bit more into it than everyone else that i knew and so i'm trying to explain like liquidity pools and staking and all these things and they're just like i have no idea what the crap you're talking about so i just was starting to think about that and um had a friend and i was just like uh, man, like there's all these things that are just so hard to explain. How do, how could we explain it to people? Like if only there was some easy interface that, that explained things easier, like a game. And she was like, well, why don't you build it? You know, I'll help you. And so that was sort of the origin story. And, and so we started creating this idea of like a, essentially like a Dex that had a game UI to it. Um, and then of course, as that started to go underway, all the other things, all of like synergies and ideas started to pop up like, Hey, let's have NFTs. Let's have like in-game heroes that can like do quests and, and, and can like help you to unlock tokens and, and like all these other things. And it just spiraled from there into like this whole idea of a RPG with NFTs that weren't just images that, that actually could like level up and could change and like earn XP and all that type of stuff. So it just kind of spiraled from there and, Everyone like really loved it and it just exploded. And so we hired a bunch of people and here we are. Um, that's basically the origin was it started out as trying to like educate people, but also I'm a huge fan of like ready player one sort of things. Um, and I see the blockchain as being the way that that future will happen because I don't know if any of you guys have like read the book or seen the movie, big but time. you have assets from, sorry. Oh, big time. Yeah. Yeah, it's an awesome and and so in there like you could have like the Millennium Falcon flying through some like medieval world or something and that's you know entirely what is actually doable on the blockchain because you can have assets from all kinds of different games but if these other games are on the same blockchain or in the same like universe or like metaverse essentially you can see that and say, hey, I, I own these assets from these other games. Why can't I use them here in this game? And the answer is you can as long as it supports that. So I'm a huge fan of that, and I see that as being the future. Um, so just creating sort of a 8-bit or like 16-bit start to the online gaming metaverse and then having it evolve over time because these assets you'll own forever. Um, so having those just have like added like utility as more and more things get created for them inside of the metaverse. Yeah. It did always seem to me like, uh, like it might be a shrewd approach to kind of start simple, um, whether it's in terms of the, the graphics or in terms of the mechanics and, uh, kind of build from there rather than, uh, well, overhyping, overpromising at the beginning and then, uh, and then failing to deliver, uh, Magnus, do you have anything to add to that? And, uh, could you maybe, um, tell us a bit about some of the mechanics in DeFi Kingdoms. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, yeah. I, I, so uh, once once Fox uh, kind of founded DeFi Kingdoms, I um, I, I actually uh, kind of got my exposure to it on the player side of things. And and, and to me, what uh, what really like caught my eye with uh, with DFK was uh, just kind of the like it was world building inside of a a DeFi application. Like you you uh, connect your wallet, and, and immediately there's there's music there, and um, and the, and uh, just uh, really awesome pixel art and uh, and and uh, uh, funnily enough, I, I guess I, I made my way from the, the player side of things on onto uh, actually writing the smart contracts for for the platform. Um, and 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 to me that that uh, that just kind of 
deep integration that and that emotional emotional connection with uh, something that's that's usually kind of very like dry and mathematical or more on the financial side of things was it was really cool kind of jumping into that and uh, and, and yeah um, at, as we've kind of uh, built over time it, you know it's, it started with the, the hero NFTs uh, uh, which were uh, they sold out very quickly there's a lot of interest around that and uh, uh, it, it, we've just continually added more and more utility like uh, leveling up the heroes um, sending them out on quests. Uh, we're, we're currently working on a on a PvP game uh, with uh, with Wisdom Labs, um, and and that's that's going to be a, a very exciting and kind of take it into more of the gaming space, uh, more so than the the gamified DeFi. So uh, tremendously ex- excited about that, and uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's been really interesting to to build all this um, on the blockchain. Uh, we we like constantly run into the kind of like. Uh, boundaries of what you can do with smart contracts and, and how much like processing power you can put on chain. So uh, it's really cool to, uh, to kind of be ta- uh, on the forefront of like uh, tackling those uh, on, on the gaming side of things and, and seeing how much computation we can put uh, to, to make a, a cool experience for our players. So um, I, I think we're, we're doing some really cool stuff and I, I'm uh, excited to see uh, kind of where we take this this year. Yeah, PvP. I know that's always a highly anticipated aspect of any game. Um, do you have any kind of timeline for when that will be available? Uh, so, so we're we're kind of in the in the alpha testing phases right now, um, and uh, we're, 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 we're going to uh, kind of re- release that soon to uh, kind of like a, a smaller crowd, um, and then uh, the 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 goal would be uh, to. Some, some sometime in the, in the next uh, few months um, is, is kind of the target. So uh, d- definitely, uh, uh, we're releasing alpha every day on on our Twitter page uh, on uh, like the various mechanics and whatnot. So uh, if you're interested in that uh, out there in the audience, uh, definitely like stay tuned because uh, yeah, we'll be releasing uh, uh, very quickly. Awesome, yeah. Oh, I see that uh, we got Irene up on stage. Uh, Irene, could you introduce yourself and? Uh... If you have any kind of uh, connection to gaming in your background, that would also be great to hear about. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me here, and, and sorry about the delay. Uh, I head up BizDev at Layer Zero and have been spending a lot of time with different gaming studios and projects like DeFi Kingdoms. My background in gaming isn't super extensive, but when I was a kid, I was absolutely obsessed with with games like Neopets and uh, traditional games like Mario Kart. But you know, super thrilled to now be working with five kingdoms and talking more about onft neopets yeah wow that's a blast from the past i haven't uh, <laughs> haven't heard that name in a long time they'll actually be you know coming back on shane which is something really exciting oh cool yeah um so with DeFi kingdoms magnus you mentioned uh pushing up against the limits of what's possible with smart contracts um so i was wondering and this is a question for both you and fox um, is there on-chain gaming infrastructure that uh, exists now that didn't a few years ago um, that now lets you do uh, things that you've wanted to but haven't been able to up until now? I guess this is kind of a leading question uh, considering the topic of our interview, but uh, but I'm, I'm asking more generally as well. Yeah, uh, for, for sure. So uh, one, of, one of the biggest things uh, uh, recently that uh, that is uh, we, we started using is, is the diamond pattern. Um, and, and so like traditionally, you can only fit like 24 kilobytes of, of logic on uh, kind of in one smart contract, and you have to start branching out to different contracts. Uh, but the, the diamond pattern, uh, uh, it, it basically lets you put uh, uh, like a theoretically like infinite, infinite amount of logic um, behind like one single address. 
and uh, and so um, as we kind of like uh, learned some lessons from like our, our recent quest questing system, uh, we've done a few iterations of that. We're currently on V2, and then I'm, I'm currently working on on V3. Um, we, we switched over to that, and and that's going to like free us up to uh, put in a lot of new utility like like pet feeding, and then we just released our power up system as well. And, and, and so that, that's that's kind of like a a key thing on the smart contract side of things. And, and then uh, obviously, yeah, um, all of the awesome Virgin architecture right, as things kind of uh, uh, go multi-chain and there and there are uh, different subnets like DFK chain. Uh, 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 awesome infrastructure like like Layer Zero is a uh, is pretty critical in in our path forward. Um, and, and yeah, I, I'll let Fox uh, kind of say his part as well. Yeah, no, um, I think a lot has been added, and it's really crazy to see just the pace that everything's advancing in this field. Um, even just like six months ago, there weren't nearly as many things as there are now, and six months prior to that, there was almost nothing. Um, I sort of like think back to CryptoKitties uh, that launched on Ethereum a few, like four four or five years ago at this point, I think, um, and it very quickly rose to be like one of the most uh popular apps on that blockchain. Um, the problem is Ethereum um, has a lot of things that's being built on it and uh, has a lot of validators and things, and it's really great for a lot of reasons, but it's not great at scaling, at least not at that time, to meet all of that uh, demand that like was actually there. I think each block took like 30 seconds or so to actually have it get like validated. Um, and the fees were very high. Sometimes you'd be paying $50 worth of gas fees just to mint a new like NFT, uh, off of their system. So it was very expensive to play. Um, since then you see sort of like the rise of all kinds of L2s all over the place, um, that, that offer like very fast block times, two seconds or even one second in this, uh, um, in like some cases, and usually, uh, like the gas is just a fraction of a penny. So at that point, it starts to become more feasible to actually have a a online on-chain game that's completely encasing all of the logic on the blockchain. Um, a lot of people have asked us, like, why create a game entirely on the blockchain? Why not try and do what everyone else is doing and just have the offline game where you can then just like mint NFTs? And the answer is that we're doing it not because it's easy, but because uh, it's hard. Like, we're trying to push the envelope there of what's possible on the blockchain. And it's also in the spirit of the blockchain, which is a sort of provable, trustless uh, way of, like, managing assets and all that type of stuff. So um, there's a few, like, really, really good reasons for that. And we're moving towards that goal every single day. I just want to say, Fox, it's been almost six years, buddy. We're uh, we're, we're getting old. Crypto Kitties was a long time at this point. <laughs> Crazy to think about. Yep. Yeah, I saw a, I saw a meme the other day. It was a screenshot of uh, what was that? Uh, oh man, I forget now. Those images with uh, it was just like a list of character items, and then uh, it just blew up as an NFT collection um, because people were speculating on the possibility of. Oh, dude! Don't get me started. It's loot, is what loot. you're talking about, and I still have I still have some divine robes. So tough, uh, tough times, tough times. Well, I'm sure it'll it'll be used for something eventually. Um, yeah, speaking of uh, doing everything on chain, um, it sounds like yeah. On the one hand, you really have your work cut out for you, but uh, but if it's possible, then um, there'll be a lot of value there. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, let's see. You started on Harmony. 
Um, but now you're on uh, your own chain and uh, Clayton. So could you talk a little bit about um, why you chose the chains that you did? Yeah, sure. Uh, so as I sort of mentioned, uh, Harmony was a very, very good uh, candidate for a like very cheap chain that had like two second block finality. Um, it was a excellent place to start out. Um, it, it also was was not very mainstream at the time. Um, and we sort of just like stealth launched there. Like we didn't really tell anyone we were going to launch on Harmony. Um, we avoided uh, trying to like have any kind of like partnership or, or any kind of like a grant or a bounty. We were just like, let's do this. And I actually like sort of anecdotally, I think it was like a few weeks after we launched one of the founders of, of like Harmony started to see, okay, like all of a sudden our app was doing most of the transactions on their chain. And he like reached out to me. He's like, who are you guys? Like, where did you come from? <laughs> you know? Uh, so it was, it was actually like pretty cool. And it was a very good, environment for that to start out and to grow but as we grew we very quickly realized that we do a lot of transactions millions of transactions um and so it started to make sense for us to look into uh other chains as well because if we had all of our app just on one chain it's kind of like putting all of your eggs in one basket um so we started to basically like brainstorm what could an app look like that was a multi-chain cross-chain app that could have like certain realms beyond certain chains and so we created this whole idea with that. And so our plan was to do like four expansions onto other chains and create sort of a like unified experience across all these chains. Um, as we were doing that avalanche and actually a few others, um, approached us and said, Hey, please, uh, uh, strongly consider us first, basically. So we went with like the best one that we saw at, at that time. And avalanche was the one that we decided to go with. Um, and at the same time, Avalanche was creating this new subnet EVM uh, technology that allows apps to basically run their own blockchain through their uh, their technology. So that was huge, and that was part of the reason that we uh, started to like head down that path because the opportunity for us to have our own chain was was just really huge. It added additional utility for our like in-game tokens, um, and it also allowed us a lot of like flexibility to basically tailor the uh, EVM to handle very, very high throughput and have it be like very cheap, which are all very important things when you're trying to make a game on chain. And actually, can, uh, actually, can I, can I ask yeah. some questions about that? So these are like not loaded questions because I don't know the answer at all. Um, how, well, first of all, like how have you guys found the experiences of subnet so far? Subnets, I think it's been great. Um, I'm a huge fan of the technology and of what Avalabs is uh, doing and building with that. And Avalabs has been a really like amazing uh, group to work with. Uh, so it's been really, really good. Um, they're adding things that allow for doing like pre-compiles, which essentially means like you can create special programs that will run on your blockchain to add extra kinds of like features that you wouldn't find on other kinds of blockchains. Um, so th that could have like utility for like more secure on-chain randomness or uh, being able to process things for like faster or for less like gas and things like that. So the opportunities there are huge. And I think it's really something that allows us to have a lot of like flexibility for the future as we grow as well. Definitely. And are you guys are validators on um, the DeFi Kingdom chains? Is it open yet? Is it, or is it still permissioned? 
Uh, it's still permission, but we are like really starting to move closer and closer every day towards opening that up. We have actually a list of uh, interested parties that have asked us if if like um, we could add them into that set. And I think we're we're probably just weeks away from having a solid plan of action that we'll share with the community and have a way for them to sort of like apply to become a validator. And it'll be kind of like a pilot program at first as we sort of create some new processes in place. And the end goal there, of course, is to like open that up. Um, I see a future where like in-game guilds would basically like run their own validators and could actually receive in-game sort of like kickbacks or things from them having their own like validator. And it's basically the players securing and hosting the actual like assets of the actual game that they play, which I think is just this whole new paradigm, which is awesome. Oh man. Super, super cool. And yeah, like, like the new, uh, the new phantom, the new Canto stuff, right. The the new meta of kind of chains giving back some percentage of, uh, of overall transactional flow to applications, I think is this, this whole sort of fascinating game theory side of things. Um, okay. That's super cool. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that was all I, I generally wanted to ask because there like, aren't many people, there's, there's a lot of people are building subnets now and games are moving over. But there aren't many who are like out there in production, just like doing the thing. So it's super cool to hear. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I, I, uh, you don't hear about too many uh, avalanche subnets so far. I, I could be totally wrong, but uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, let's let's move into talking about layer zero um, because we talked about uh, cross chain, and I think, uh, I mean, that's uh, that's what you guys are all about. So uh, Brian and Irene, maybe you could uh, give us a an intro to layer zero. And then uh, how, what the relevance is for gaming in particular. Yeah, so, I mean, Layer Zero is an underlying technology that lets two contracts on two chains talk to each other, right? That's, that's basically what it does, cross-chain communication. And so most games, uh, it really depends on kind of how they're built. So the way the DeFi Kingdom's built is super interesting because it's really like each chain is its own kingdom. So you want to go to a different kingdom to perform maybe a different set of actions, you migrate across that chain, arrive at that kingdom, and now you can do things. And this sort of allows them to tap into wildly different uh, sort of customer bases, uh, sort of the people on the local chain, the people on Harmony, the people, you know, on all Arbitrum and all of these different chains that allow you to sort of like go in and, and reach out to a new uh, kind of entirely different player set that may have like, I kind of treat this in my own mind, which I'm not sure if that's how you guys think about it, but in my own mind, it kind of feels like, a you know, you're starting city in, uh, in EverQuest in World of Warcraft or whatever, right? You have, like, your city, and then you can go out and, like, travel to different things that may have different sets of, of shops, activities, uh, enemies to fight, whatever, uh, but it's sort of like an entirely different experience as you move around. Um, I think what you see other games do, there's, there's a whole spectrum of, of what people want to do. A lot of people will have a lot of games move to like this model of kind of application-specific blockchain, right? So DeFi Kingdom is doing so much transactional volume that not only does it make sense for them to have and own their own chain uh, because they get to like accrue value back to the game and use that to like produce new awesome content. Like why give that away uh, sort of other ecosystems? But at the same time, um, a lot of the other chains like can't handle uh, the underlying applications. Like... Uh, DFK would be way too popular and sort of resource intensive to, to live on Ethereum. And all of this started, you know, with 
with Axiron for exactly uh, that way, right? For moving off of Ethereum. But what they still needed or wanted was to kind of tap into uh, the liquidity of, of the marketplace on Ethereum because that's where all the NFTs live. That's where all of like the most liquidity lived. And so um, a lot of games want to have gameplay in a place that's like an execution environment that's fast and high throughput. And uh, you, know, you can do everything you want to do in the game. But then maybe when you have your, your high-end gear, when you have like a, a true marketplace, like you want that to live in like the highest liquidity environment or at least have access to the highest liquidity environment. So oftentimes that means tying it back to one of the primary layer ones. This could be Solana, this could be Ethereum, this could be, you know, wherever that activity lives. So I think you see that a lot. Uh, but the kind of things people are doing now are, are, are way beyond what I originally expected people to do when we first uh first started releasing some of the stuff and talking to gaming companies it's been super cool to see yeah that has to be exciting to to see your product used in ways that uh, that you didn't even imagine um so irene how about this uh um integration with DeFi kingdom specifically how did this come about well, I'd, I'd love to pass that off to the DeFi Kingdoms team to speak a little bit more to their integration experience. But I think DeFi Kingdoms is, integration is such a great showcase of, of ONFT and, and OFT, which are the two standards we've created for minting in-game tokens and in-game assets as uh, native contracts on multiple chains. And so uh, all of the NFTs that are native to their subnet are also uh, transferable to, to Clayton and exist there without being wrapped and can move back to the main chain and, and have value and be unified across all of these chains. Yeah. Uh, Fox and Magnus, how about from your side? Um, how did, uh, how did you, I guess, first of all, how did you guys choose a layer zero? And then, uh, yeah, how has the experience been um, and how has it improved uh, DeFi Kingdoms' as UX? Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead, Fox. I was just going to say, uh, I should probably have Magnus uh, speak about this. He's the really uh, smart guy who who essentially like scouted out all of the uh, technology that we could use for this. And he's the one who I who was able to like say, OK, layer zero would be a really great partner for this and this and this. Um, I can speak to to the experience and. Uh, I've been really, really impressed with the technology that is offered by Layer Zero and also their like responsiveness. Uh, I think they very, very quickly were able to like launch and to integrate with with us on our testnet for our chain, and they've been a really great uh, partner all along the way. And also, it's just amazing that we can basically uh, have our like in-game assets and like NFTs and things be bridged and still carry all of their same like attributes and things because actually our NFTs are pretty complex. It's not just a picture. They have all kinds of stats and experience points and state, which has to basically change every time that gets bridged. It has to essentially like replicate that across all these chains. So huge kudos to them on that and huge uh, kudos as well over there to Magnus. He's been just pretty much the guy who has been doing all this. So I'll let him speak about that. Yeah. So as, as far as how we learned about layer zero, um, I, I actually heard Brian give a talk uh, about LZ at the avalanche summit last year. Um, and it immediately piqued my interest because it was, it was exactly what we were looking for as we were about to expand from harmony onto DFK chain. Um, the, the big selling point for me um, is that uh, it, it's, it's basically like all the underlying security assumptions and, and, uh, Everything that needs to be audited on a bridge and the relayer network is all is all taken care of by layer zero. And then we can just build our uh, our game logic on top 
uh, whether that's uh, with our item bridge or in the future with uh, uh, sending uh, uh, equipment NFTs across chain or uh, uh, basically, basically like we have the flexibility to uh, to build whatever we want and uh, we're, we typically uh, move uh, pretty fast in our process and and if somebody thinks of a new feature and it's it's good to implement we uh, uh, we, we like having that flexibility to, to uh, basically um, integrate new things uh, and uh, so the, the freedom to do that is, is amazing on, on kind of like the user application level um, and then uh, also also uh, layer zero has a, has a really cool uh, feature of being able to like retry stuck transactions and, and that's open to anyone so if, if a transaction runs out of gas um, so it's kind of decentralized in that on the uh, receiving chain somebody can go in and, and uh, do the retry process so to me that's uh, incredibly valuable and, and helps with the decentralization um, and, and then uh, uh, one, one of my last points is, is uh, Layer Zero's uh, got a Layer Zero scan. Um, and, and so you can actually see the source transaction when it was initiated. And then you, you can also, uh, our, our end users can, can go on there and, and look and see if their items have made it across. Um, and if, uh, if there's some issue uh, we need to take a look at, it's, it's very clear to, to see when that happens. So it's, it, uh, a lot of the developer tooling uh, is, is just extremely helpful. And, and then that, uh, the, the ability to uh, kind of let, let us build the application logic while they handle, uh, handle uh, the security and, and, and uh, audits and things like that has just been uh, great. So uh, I don't have an, uh, enough great uh, things to say about Layer Zero and, and the experience so far uh, building with them. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So uh, um, let's see. If I could summarize, um, be better visibility for both the, the users and the developers, um, better, uh, let's see, security. Um, for transactions, and I guess being able to to resend stuck transactions—that sounds like a like a huge thing because that's always the fear. Um, I mean, doing a transaction and then uh, you're you're kind of stuck in limbo where it says sent on one side and you don't know where it is on the other side. Um, so it sounds yeah pretty significant. Um, Irene, you mentioned uh, OFTs, omni-chain uh, fungible tokens, and uh, yeah. omni-chain non-fungible tokens. I'd love to hear. Uh, more about those and uh, and how you came up with the standards for those. Yeah, I wish Raz, our CTO, were on right now since he's the, the true architect behind the ONFT and, and uh, OFT standards. But uh, the real unlock for ONFT for for gaming and, and also just broadly is future-proofing these assets. You know, today you might be launching your game just in this subnet, uh, but tomorrow you might be extending the game to to Clayton, to all these other chains, to chains where there's better liquidity, to invite other communities to come in. And uh, by baking in that optionality into where you can move and, and hold your asset and hold it in a way that maintains provenance is really, really huge. We're now seeing some NFT projects that are looking to migrate to other chains. And if ONFT were, were baked in natively into the contract, uh, it would mean that uh, it's it's just a, a lock and unlock essentially at the smart contract level for users to be able to go elsewhere. And uh, our ONFT standard also led to a proxy ONFT smart contract, which is a way to uh, enable existing NFT collections or existing in-game assets to bridge natively elsewhere. And so ONFT is is picking up right now. It's the way for NFTs to move between chains. And there have been a bunch of exciting announcements about this recently. Brian, maybe you could speak a little bit more to the origin story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the origin story really is like, well, all, uh, interestingly enough, all of the origin story of Layer Zero comes from us wanting to 
like me and Ryan and Caleb were just like three friends building some stuff. And we just wanted to build a game that involved NFTs. So that was like literally how Layer Zero got started. Um, but as we evolved and watched people build stuff, like we, we realized very quickly as collections started to launch, um, it was amazing kind of what you could do and, and watch people do. So like Ghostly Ghost did this. And all of a sudden you have this collection that was like launched on seven chains, could move to seven chains. You had the users who were like the metadata was based on the chain data, both that you were birthed on and that you were currently living on. And so there was all of this uh, sort of tie in around that. And it, it seemed super cool. But then we looked uh, sort of further up the stack and like all of a sudden uh, the collection started being kind of fragmented, right? OpenSea didn't view it as a single collection. They viewed it as ghostly ghost Ethereum, ghostly ghost Polygon, and then, there, you know, OpenSea didn't exist on the other chains. And so there started to be all these, like, meta issues that, that lived above that. And so uh, we started to say, like, okay, well, this, you know, if people are continuously launching kind of their own... Um, their own NFT versions of this and everybody's doing something different, well, that, that's going to start to get kind of messy at a layer, a layer above. It's going to be hard to resolve. And so that's when we started working on kind of the ONFT standards of just like, okay, uh, let's focus on making like an actual standard for how these assets should be so that it's very, very easy uh, at the layer above, at the marketplace level, to aggregate these collections, to see what is one singular collection, what should be tied together. Uh, because the ultimate goal is, is, again, that all of this is viewed as kind of like a singular collection. So most of this came from how do you make the best possible thing that not only gives the projects this optionality, right? So like it sucked if you were an NFT project on Terra, um, and Terra just like blew up, right? And like validators are leaving, the chain is dying, uh, what what are you going to do, right? Uh, you you don't really have the ability to migrate, and so uh, people started launching with NFTs just just for like optionality. People even just on single chains where they were not launching multi chain, but they were just like it was almost no cop to do it. So they would launch with the standard, and then just like if they ever wanted to go to another chain, they could, and if they didn't, it, literally they would never know the difference. Nobody would ever know that they had like built on the standard. Um, and so like that started to be really interesting and in how people were using it. And it really is just the evolution of that. How do you, how do you make this thing that is incredibly easy to move, gives users like, uh, the end user total ownership, uh, and gives sort of optionality to both the dev, uh, and, and to the end user. Now, is that something where, uh, it relies on layer zero infrastructure? So right now it's, uh, it's available, um, or possible as, for all the chains that layer zero is connected to, or is it even broader than that? Yeah. So right now this, yeah. If you, if you implement ONFP and you're on a single chain, well, you know, it will never, it will never use layer zero. Right? It's just like when you launch an ERC 20, it's just uh, a token standard that you build with. But what it means is that if you ever connect to one of these other chains, you'll be enabled by default. So it's really up to the application developer to where they want to be able to move these assets. Um, and layer zero is on 26 chains right now. So there's 26 available chains, uh, from day one when building with ONFT. Um, and that will be 40 probably in the, in the very, very, very near future. This also means that ONFTs and, and OFTs expand as layer zero expands. And so over the next, uh, two months, we'll be announcing some other really exciting non-EVMs and, uh, all of DeFi Kingdom's ONFTs and OFTs, for example, can, then at the discretion of the creators and developers, uh, expand and, and be natively transferable to those other chains as well. And uh, OFT is, is the fungible token version of this standard. And so there are a bunch of really cool uh, examples of this. And 
for example, like the Stargate token is an OFT. Uh, for a bunch of games, their in-game uh, currencies are, are OFTs and, and therefore uh, can transfer between chains and, and subnets and main chains without the need for asset wrapping uh, or liquidity pools. Very cool. With uh, with these uh, omni-chain assets, is it, uh, is it the case that any um, traditional asset can be turned into a, an omni-chain asset, or does it kind of does it need to be programmed in a certain way uh, from the start? Yeah, so there's there's two real ways to do it. There's if you're starting, you would launch on just an ONFT. Super easy. Uh, if you are have launched, but you're only on one chain, also super easy. You use what's called a proxy ONFT or a proxy OFT. So this is like little pudgies from Pudgy Penguins just did this. They were on one chain, they're on Ethereum, now they're on four chains. Very, very easy to do. Where it gets messy is like, if you're already on three different chains um, and you're trying to tie them together in a bunch of other chains, then things can get messy. But there's like almost no projects in the world right now who are like that, like very, very, very few uh, who aren't already built on the standard, right? So uh, if you're already, if you're pre-launch or you are launched and on a singular chain, like incredibly easy to do. Makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, as you were talking, it uh, it made me realize that um, yeah, these apps, I mean, right now we, we kind of, we look at the blockchain level and then we look within that blockchain, what apps are on it. But uh, I guess in, in the future or, or even now already, we're, uh, we're in a time when the app can kind of move freely uh, between chains. And I mean, who knows if the chains that are uh, the best at something right now are going to continue to be the best. So I guess uh, you wouldn't, uh, if, if one chain goes down or kind of uh, stagnates you wouldn't you wouldn't be locked into that chain at all the app could uh, could move freely and evolve from chain to chain yep yep 100 percent. so from the DeFi kingdom side um i'm curious how uh these omni-chain assets have changed the in-game experience for players is it is it pretty much the same or it unlocked uh, some new functionality uh fox and magnus could you speak to that yeah um Magnus will know the most, but uh, from what I can tell, uh, the important thing is usually when you bridge assets from one chain to another, they end up as sort of like a wrapped asset that that, that uh, basically is just like a NFT that shows that you own it on this other chain. Um, and so if you were to bridge that back, you could then theoretically get those assets back on the other chain. Um, but that's kind of all it does. And generally, the applications can't really do a lot with those besides just say, okay, I know that you own this. For our app, we want heroes to be able to still be playable and have stats and earn XP and level up on all of our realms, and also items in our game, which all of our items are like ERC-20 tokens. We would like those to be able to be used as ingredients for like crafting or things like that. So if, if it was just a wrapped uh, thing, then, then it just like wouldn't be able to do all those things natively in our app. And I think that's the most important thing. But Magnus, uh, you could add anything or correct me if i'm wrong please yeah so uh we, we were about uh six months uh too early to actually integrate uh layer zero's uh uh onft standard but uh we we kind of uh, uh built our own kind of bespoke uh uh, uh kind of shell around the erc 721 and we have a, a pretty massive amount of data for the hero like it's uh, it's stats and and what professions it's it's skilled up in and uh and uh whenever we bridge the hero we actually uh 
bridge all that data as well. And there's even uh, kind of like historical things like like we had a perilous journey event uh, where the hero like traveled from Harmony uh, in the in the Serendel realm over to Crystal Vale in, in the DFK realm. Um, and then uh, it, we actually like bridged that uh, that history with the hero as well. So it's it's it unlocks some really cool experiences where uh, you kind of get the experience of traveling to a, a different world almost, but all that that kind of shared history on your hero goes with it and, and it gets updated. And then if you want to go back to the original realm, uh, that, that, that follows uh, with you and uh, that, that's going to be tremendously useful in the future to be able to um, have infrastructure that can handle that amount of data and, uh, and bridge it across. And, and uh, um, I, I guess like uh, different realms also have like uh, like unique items that can be minted as well. And then, and then uh, uh, those of course need to be supported uh, as their bridge. So uh, I, I do think like uh, it, uh, the, with our view of kind of uh, looking at each chain as its, as its own uh, kind of realm and it and allows some, for some unique kind of uh, gameplay elements uh, as part of that bridging experience. Yeah, very cool. Um, it strikes me that uh, um, some of the elements that up until now have been a barrier to entry or, uh, or an inconvenience, for example, the difficulty of bridging from chain to chain, um, when you kind of gamify it and, like you said, make it into a, a perilous journey, so to speak, then uh, it could even uh, become something kind of, uh, well, attractive or uh, like very much uh, part of the game and something that actually uh, players can enjoy. So uh, yeah, very cool. Um, turning to the the um, governance of the game, I'm curious because uh, a few weeks ago we had on uh, Animoca Brands and uh, and a company called Darewise, and we were talking about the challenges. I mean, this is even something we talked about with Layer Zero last time you were on, Brian. The challenges of developing something that is meant to be immutable once it's out in the wild. I would love to hear you guys' experience of uh, developing a game, which um, at some point, at least, the the goal is that it would just exist out there um, uh, in an immutable state, um, versus the the importance of as a game developer keeping things uh, fair and fun. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite the question there, because um, yeah, it is basically a balancing act, you know. Um, to ensure that like the game stays relevant and and is uh, able to continue to be fun and exciting, you know there will be all kinds of things that have to essentially like be built layer upon layer, um, starting with layer zero, I guess. <laughs> um, sorry, that was probably a dad joke, but uh, so you have to look at it and sort of say like what things make the most sense to be immutable. And I think obviously you start out with like assets like ERC20 tokens, NFTs and things like that. And then the experiences that you can do with those will of course be changing over time. Um, Heroes started out uh, without a lot of like intrinsic utility. And then we added summoning, we added like questing and uh, all kinds of other things are slated for the future as well. And, and so essentially just adding new experiences and ways to use those assets where the underlying assets are immutable um, and the things that you can do with them are just ever increasing and changing. Yeah. Magnus, how about you? Anything on that point? Uh, yeah. Um, so so um, it, it's, it's, it's definitely a balancing act. Like uh, but all, all of our kind of like core DeFi primitives are, are uh, 
uh, kind of kind of uh, shared with uh, uh, the, the rest of the DeFi world uh, in, in terms of like like uh, Uniswap V2 uh, as as like uh, most other protocols use, and, and then our our game contracts are, are very custom, and and uh, yeah, we, had, we had, I think we have like 300 contracts now, and maybe even more than that, um, and uh, yeah, there's kind of like this diverse web of, uh, of contracts talking to each other that we're constantly building and and layering onto. So it's it's definitely a challenge of like uh, k- keeping that like DeFi core uh, very like like safe and and non upgradable and and then also uh, like making sure we're, we're uh, keeping things fun for the player. So it's uh, as a kind of a blockchain developer, it's a, it's a, a very like thin line to walk. Uh, but I I, I I really enjoy kind of building this ecosystem and, and kind of uh, pushing the boundaries of what we can do on chain. Brian and Irene, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this point as well. I know that you're not uh, directly developing a game, but uh, I know, like we talked about last time, the um, challenges of of building something immutable. Um, do you have any thoughts on, um, well, those challenges, and then I guess specifically in the context of building a game? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's a couple things. Like the general challenge of building things immutable is just like. Once you build it, you you know there there's no going back. Like there there's either there's two ways, right? So the one way is if you build it completely immutable, the pain of migration, the pain of upgrading is going to be incredibly difficult. So uh, like Uni V one to Uni V two, Uni V two to Uni V three, right? Migrating up, having this system that has billions to tens of billions of dollars in it. And saying, hey, the system's not as good anymore. Like, go to the new system. And, like, some people do, some people don't. You have two systems with fragmented liquidity now. Like, it would be much easier if they could just click a button and magically auto-migrate everybody's money over there. But if you can migrate all their money over there, then maybe you could just migrate it into your own wallet and run off or some malicious party could do it, right? And so, like, like immutability gives us the guarantees that we have within the chain, uh, or like on chain, it's one of like the greatest benefits I think of the blockchain itself. Uh, and so I think there's like surfaces where you want and need it, and there's surfaces where you don't, right? So when you have like uh, the underlying Dex engine, like m- like that is usually immutable for most people. When you have like assets on top, um, so uh, in this case, you know, like heroes or something like that. Like there's a huge range of things. And you also know, like you, you see this happen all the time, even to kind of like the best protocols in the world. When they launch early on, a lot of times they would launch in a state where like there is still windows for upgradability. There's still like emergency switches. There's the ability to do things until they believe it's in a final state and then they sunset that ability, right? So I think it's really just like all of this is a is a social contract with the people who are using the thing. So like as long as the players know, the players know like, hey, these assets uh, basically uh, can be changed. It's, you know, we're, we're building a game and we're going to change them because we're going to keep doing things that provide value to you. And if one day we want to replace the metadata with like, um, you know, like a, a rug or a piece of poop, both of which have happened to NFT projects in the past, by the way, uh, <laughs> there, there were some famous, uh, famous kind of rug pulls on the, on the metadata images. And so, um, you know, if, if this were to happen, um, then that is, again, the, the users are already trusting the devs in this case to build the game and continue to make it fun and engaging and do that. And so, like, the users are totally willing to engage in a social contract to be like, yes, I would love you to add more functionality over time. Um, whereas, like, people LPing, I don't know, a billion dollars uh, may not be okay with that, right? Because there is, like, a, a monetary point where 
uh, people have more to gain potentially than they do for like the future perspective value. Um, and so I, I think it really like depends on the system for us. Like if we had a surface to harm applications or rather if there was a surface where like applications could never protect themselves, there's no way for them to do that. Then I won't expect anybody to build on us long-term. Like, like we've been good actors. We have, you know, great famous backers and lots of money and all of these things were like, okay, people can delegate like maybe some amount of trust into the system, right? But like at some point, you're going to have you have too much. You're going to have 2 billion, 5 billion, $10 billion in the system. You're going to have applications alone that are worth 5 or $10 billion. Um, and there just isn't a world where they should be delegating sort of that trust to any external system. And so uh, part of the layer zero side on like the infrastructure side is you have to give applications the, the ability to like have control over that. You have to give them the ability to to not need to extend that risk into any external system, um, which is why we built layer zero the way that we did. I know we dove into this a lot last time and, and why uh, why we think it's it's pretty special relative to any other system that exists. On the game design side, I was just chatting with a, a founder last night about how 90% of users aren't even able to get to the point where they're playing the game because they get lost in the, the onboarding process. So I think one area where we're really excited to see uh, gaming studios improve is that onboarding flow. Right now it involves installing an extension for your wallet, getting your seed phrase, memorizing it, going to a crypto exchange and getting all the gas tokens you need, KYC first payment, wait, unlock your wallet, fund the gas, swap token, sign a transaction. And at that point, 90% of users will have churned off. Uh, there are ways that you can uh, drastically improve this. And I think with Layer Zero in particular, one feature which was natively included in, in our architecture is something we call gas abstraction, which for developers means that they can turn what otherwise would have been a a transaction that involved five different gas tokens, if it touched five different chains and required a user to go to maybe a centralized exchange to, to get those different tokens into just collapsed one click and one uh, gas token on your, your native source chain. So those are some exciting things we're hoping to see more of uh, from the game design angle. Yeah, that sounds uh, hugely important. Could you talk a little bit more about that gas abstraction and how the experience differs from uh, what we've had up until now? Brian, I saw that you unmuted. I, I was actually going to ask a totally separate question about randomness. So go ahead. You're, you're, you're already in the gas abstraction depth, so I'll, uh, I'll let you continue here. Yeah, so the question is to, to talk more about what that enables. Yeah, and from the user perspective, um, what, what, it, uh, what it feels like. Yeah, I think uh, if you think about the best user flows in, in Web2, for example, uh, if you're a PM and, and you're trying to design a great experience, you want to make sure you keep users on your website and uh, to get them from point A to B and therefore getting the value out of whatever transaction it is or whatever gameplay or uh, flow they're in as soon as possible. For a lot of experiences, not just in, in GameFi or on-chain gaming, but also in DeFi, uh, users are forced to, to leave the app that they're in to go to some centralized exchange to get multiple gas tokens in order to perform a series of, of transactions that might touch multiple chains. Instead, with layer zero and gas abstraction baked into our architecture and therefore the integration, end users pay just with their uh, native source uh, gas token from the, the source chain. And so that means as a, a game developer or uh, some other DAP developer, 
you can now abstract away what otherwise would have caused them to churn from your platform and put it all into to one click. So it's it's hugely important for eliminating churn and uh, also just making a more delightful and elegant experience for whether it be players or uh, users of your, your DeFi protocol, whatever it is. Yeah, I can definitely relate to the experience of bridging to a new chain and then realizing I have no gas. So looking for a faucet, but uh, then having to visit that faucet multiple days with multiple wallets just to try to build up enough to do one transaction. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That sounds. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a pretty significant upgrade then. On the topic of uh, of well, um, sticking with governance, um, I'm curious uh, right now with DeFi kingdoms in what ways the community currently participates, for example, in determining uh, game direction. Uh, Brian raised an interesting point about uh, smart contracts versus social contracts, or at least that's the way I kind of framed it in my mind. Um, so Fox and Magnus, I'd love to hear a bit about uh, the current state of community participation. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a huge fan of like uh, having like a DAO structure and, and like having things be more driven by the community. And I think with any project that I've seen and us included, you know, it starts out as sort of like an idea of like one or two people and it just kind of grows from there um, and starts to basically be able to sort of have a life of its own. And as it grows, it gets more and more decentralized and more and more players can hold more and more sway within that project. Um, so a lot of projects will have their own, like, uh, their ERC-20 uh, governance token or something that's used, like, to do on-chain votes and things. We've had that uh, since, I think, the very start, right out the gate. Um, so it's been a very important thing, and we've held many, many votes that have really influenced the direction that we go in. Um, we sort of have to balance things. If it's if it's a small thing just about trying to create like certain features for the game or like the best way to architect things, a lot of times that's just us as Kingdom Studios will just say, okay, let's do this. However, if it's anything that uh, impacts the uh, like the protocol in a like significant way, we'll always hold like a vote for that to ensure that it's what the community wants first, or if they want to do something else, then we'll do something else. Um, and that's really like what it's all about is essentially like players within the game having the ability to choose and to influence the direction that that online game is actually going, I think is huge. And it's a whole new uh, approach to this that I haven't really seen in any other area in this entire industry, really. Are there uh, any times, for example, when uh, there was a vote and you uh, felt that uh, things should go a particular way and the community ended up choosing a different way? I mean, it, it's got to be difficult to um, to create something and then kind of relinquish some control over that, uh, especially if it means uh, it might turn into something that you perhaps didn't initially envision? Yeah, um, we, we've had, I think, a couple times that that's happened. Um, most of our votes end up being like 99.7% of the communities on the same page, and they all say like the same way. Um, but there has been times that like we've actually been um, surprised about this or that. And I think that's good. You know, it's basically a direct uh, way for your actual like users to say, hey, here's what we would like to see. And so instead of us saying, here's what we think is best, here's what we think is best for you, we're asking them, what is best for you? 
um, and everyone having the ability to like use their real world assets directly in our game with a real world economy inside of our game, it's very very important because there's a lot more than just basically like the fun of it, but there's also a lot of real world assets there too. So um, I think you know that's very very healthy for an ecosystem to have a community. So, you know, here's what we collectively would like to do. And maybe it's not always the same thing that we want to do. Most of the time it is. But if it's not, you know, there's also opportunities there for others to come and to build apps. And actually in our community, we've had a ton of people just on their own accord to start to create apps around our ecosystem. And there's been a lot of things that have uh, sprung up around it to support it. There's also been things that have launched on our own chain um, as well. And so, like, we're actively encouraging others to build and to come and be partners with us to create this this online like metaverse there. So I'm a huge proponent of that. You mentioned uh, that you might be opening up the DFK chain to uh, other validators. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that, the, uh, the challenges, but also the, um, the benefits of a more permissionless environment? Yeah, um, I'll speak a little bit, and then I'll hand the mic over to Magnus, too, because he's... Uh, a like really influential player there as well. But essentially what it is, is um, actually like right now we have a RFC open on our site for all of our community to uh, come in and to vote and to add their voice to what we should do for opening up our chain. Currently, if you want to create smart contracts on our chain, you have to be whitelisted. Um, and so it's sort of like a more centralized thing right now. And the reason that we do that is because we want to ensure that our chain can scale with all of our like millions of transactions that we do every day. Um, it's very important that we like maintain the user experience, but we also are huge, uh, huge fans, I guess, of the whole like trustlessness and not having to ask permission to do this or that. Um, that's really the whole point of us being on the blockchain. And that's what I'm a huge fan of individually as well. So we're trying to see how can we remove that that uh, like requirement there, but still ensure the security and the safety and the speed and stability of our chain and the assets of all those people that have assets on it. So we're exploring some ideas, and we have like six ideas that we threw out, and some of them uh, are a lot more uh, accepted than others. So we're just sort of seeing what the community says about that. And part of that is also trying to look for ways to open up so that anyone can come in and actually be a validator as well. And I'm very, very optimistic that in, in like the next few weeks and months, we'll have some really big strides there such that anyone can come and just with a few clicks can start to build on our chain and can actually uh, sign up to add them onto our validator list as well. So Magnus, over to you. Yeah, so uh, as Fox mentioned, uh, we've, we've kind of been brainstorming it internally for, for months on, uh, as we kind of think about uh, removing the allow list on DFK chain and, and, and how to approach that. And uh, we actually had the idea of, of kind of releasing like a request for comment document with all the kind of uh, leading ideas we had so far and, and just turned that over to the community and, and said, hey, we'd like to have your, your feedback, like to your thoughts on what the, the best direction is. And, and there's kind of like uh, two, two top winners right now. And actually one of those, I, I, I didn't think, that would actually uh, uh, be what the community would want. So it's it's been it's been really cool to uh, just kind of see that uh, kind of uh, governance in action through our uh, our, our CJUL token um, and SJUL token. Uh, it's kind of like the, the the voting token. So that that's been a really cool experience to to just kind of uh, uh, 
brainstorm some ideas and then and then let the community uh, kind of take that even even further and come up with uh, cool ideas on how to implement that even as we've seen on our talks our talk site um, and then uh, it, to answer your original question about uh, opening up the chain for new validators that uh, yeah it's definitely something I'm excited about uh, uh, Eva Labs has built this uh, this really cool feature into the subnet uh, called Elastic subnets where uh, uh, currently it's it's a permission blockchain as is, as it's been mentioned but um, but we, in the near term, we, we want to open up a small percentage of stake to other validators, and then in, in the future with Elastic subnets, uh, once that uh, technology supports our, our Jewel token, um, which is like a gas token on the on DFK chain, uh, we want to we can eventually like hand over our control keys and, and fully decentralize it, where it can be uh, more of like a traditional uh, proof of stake network like ETH2. So uh, very excited about uh, about that technology that Ava Labs has built, and uh, I, I think that's uh, our our ultimate goal for uh, truly opening up the chain. Very cool. Uh, one question I have, and I'd be curious to hear um, all four of your thoughts on this, if you have any. Um, in uh, in crypto, we, we talk a lot about, about uh, decentralization, of, of course, um, but also like whether it's a whether it's a black and white or whether it's a spectrum, and if so, how much decentralization is necessary, and maybe um, the answer is different for different applications. So I'm curious uh, your thoughts on in in gaming specifically uh how much decentralization is necessary i mean does it need to be nation state resistant or uh is there a, a less decentralized level that is sufficient um any of you if you have any thoughts on that i'd be very curious i have some thoughts um i think for sure it's a spectrum exactly like you said uh if if you have things that like need to be 100 percent like resistant to all kinds of uh attacks you know like for sure there's uh, certain use cases for that and you know like you do certain tools for certain jobs uh we've actually considered and looked at the option of having sort of like another subnet that could uh be more centralized and could run some of our internal logic um and then have sort of like a more open subnet that's more for other people to build on uh so that's uh essentially like an option out there too we also have our own like API, which is obviously off-chain, and so uh, that is sort of an example of us having a portion of our game that's more controlled and more centralized, whereas like all of the rest of it is on the blockchain. So I think for sure it's a spectrum. Yeah, big time. Anyone else? I mean, uh, don't mean to put anyone on the spot. Uh, if if uh, if not, then can move on. But I'm just curious. No, I mean, I, I think my stance is, is similar similar to earlier. I think uh, I, I think I agree and kind of went over went over my my feelings. I also think that it's a spectrum for sure. Even if you look at like Ethereum two point um, the the direction that they're going, where they have all these lanes and things, you know, it's the same idea. You'll have certain lanes that can do a lot more throughput and transactions, and they might have less. Uh, like oversight or like validators, but it can like roll up into one. So there's all kinds of different layers there. Yeah, for sure. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, all right. I want to talk about risk management um, in light of 2022. I mean, what a crazy year. Uh, not only in terms of the blowups that we saw, but also, I mean, so many bridge hacks and then just the, the value of so many uh, in-game tokens plummeting. Um, First of all, what what effect has the bear market had on you guys over the past year? 
Yeah, um, I think everyone's been impacted. Um, we especially got hit sort of with like a one-two punch. Um, we had some of our treasury, uh, you know, in like stable coins, um, one of which was like Luna uh, UST. And so it got hit, which was unfortunate. Um, and then shortly after we had the Harmony Bridge hack, uh, which hit us on the other side. So suddenly, um, you know, it, it really impacted our treasury. But we, uh, we've we always operated sort of like under budget uh, at a surplus. And we were able to not have any kind of like liabilities or things that, that sort of like had to force our hand to stop. So we basically just were able to continue to build uh, throughout all of the bear market and into the future. Um, and honestly, it's almost been a blessing in disguise in a sense. Um, you know, uh, I had this old saying that, like, in the bear market, that's when you build. Um, it's all of those that stick with it through the tough times that are able to be in a good position to really fly off when it starts to come back. Um, and so, like, you see all those out there at this time that are still out there just basically every day trying to build, build, build. It's those projects that have the the true, like, ideology and the true forward-looking vision to really succeed in the long run, I think. And I think we've been able to do that and we will continue to do that as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Magnus, how about you? Any thoughts on uh, building during the bear market uh, and perhaps any, any lessons learned from last year? Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like Fox mentioned, it's, it's kind of a blessing in, in disguise uh, during, during the bull run. It's, it's kind of just like, go, go, go. And, and, uh, and, and just try to, uh, get features out as, as much as you can. But uh, when things calm down a little bit, that gives you the opportunity to kind of like ta tackle that technical debt, kind of uh, look more strategically and, and really uh, kind of like build a firm foundation for the future. And uh, I, I think it's been particularly helpful uh, to, to really sink some time into our, our upcoming PVP game uh, and, and really uh, make sure we're kind of architecting that for, for the, uh, the long term. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it was, but last year was definitely a rough year, but I I, I will say I'm I'm uh, kind of uh, looking forward to uh, uh, what we build through the bear market into the next bull cycle. Looking at uh, token prices specifically, um, it feels like on the way up the the promise or the I guess the <clears throat> the the merit of blockchain games was oh you can earn assets with real world value, but then of course on the way down. Um, it's, uh, of course, a double-edged sword where uh, not only are you maybe losing net worth in the real world, but then in your uh, your game character is also uh, losing value. Um, your in-game tokens are losing value. Do you think um, Do you think that crypto games can be successful if they're tied to uh, the value of real-world assets? I think 100% it can. Um, and, you know, it's like in any, like, real-world economy, when you have a, like, recession or a slump, um, even if your business individually is still uh, hitting all of the metrics that, that it should be hitting, you could still see it earning less and less because of sort of, like, the macro environment there. Um, what I think is one of the huge draws of on-chain gaming is the ability to have a real-world in-game economy. Um, I played, you know, Final Fantasy XI and like others, where you'd have players that would go and they'd go and try to farm items and earn some gold. And then on the black market, on like 
Craigslist or whatever, they would sell like gold um, to like other players. And a lot of times it would be against the terms of service or like they'd get banned or whatever. But um, here in our game, we're sort of embracing it such that like uh, you aren't interacting with us to win. Like you aren't able to pay us to have an advantage. You're, instead, you're paying other players. So it's like um, a like real world economy where like you get assets that other people uh, supply and it's a all the way in game like essentially baked into it so that if I send a hero on a quest and I earn like a, a special egg that I was able to get lucky and find or even just like a fish that I caught I could turn around and I could sell that fish for a very small amount of bitcoin straight on our decks over in the marketplace so it's really just a it's like the first time I've seen anyone try and do this in a online game and I'm very excited to see where that goes yeah, yeah. It uh, it reminds me of uh, in in my conversation with uh, Yatsu from Animoca. He said it's not so much that uh, like crypto games are creating uh, new markets for these assets. It's more like uh, up until now, these these markets have always existed. But uh, with traditional gaming, they're they're like you say a black market or they're in the shadows or um, banned. But uh, now it's bringing it into the light, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. It's like if you need something to craft an item, uh, you could basically say, hey, I'm going to buy this item from someone else who had their hero's quest to earn that item. And it's just creating a very real supply and demand economy inside the game. How about on the topic of um, making it easier for new users to come in? Because obviously from an adoption standpoint, that's awesome. But then I know that uh, with DeFi, one of the things people said was that um, there were a lot of risks, but uh, in a sense, it was good that it was so hard to get in because then um, probably only the people who really understood those risks um, were able to do it. And uh, so that you didn't have like uh, this mass, um, I guess, disaster, like in the case of something like FTX, where it's so easy to open an account and start trading, but then uh, you lose all your funds. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on um, bringing in new users versus... Uh, eliminating risks, or I guess more more appropriately, um, making sure users are aware of the risks? Yeah, um, I think it's a thing that's just a intrinsic issue currently with the whole entire space. It's, it's, it's a very high barrier of entry, and that's part of what we're doing is trying to make it easier for people to come and create an account and have like tutorials and like in-game things that will sort of walk them through all these advanced concepts. Um, and I think it's a thing that will improve as time goes on, uh, because basically, you know, like you look around and you see all these projects that are trying to make it easier for just like regular users to come and create a wallet and have their own control of assets, but also have things built in around that such that if they do like forget phrases or this or that, there's other ways to sort of like recover. And I think as time goes on, you'll see it get easier and easier. I kind of sort of like liken it to the early days of the internet where if you were in like the late 80s or like early 90s and you wanted to get on the internet you had to like hop hop through some hoops you had to like install a hardware modem and like do like some kind of uh things there and like hop through hoops there and, and stuff and the stuff that you could do once you got on the internet was very very limited like you could do uh, IRC chat and, and just like a few other things, but it didn't really have a lot of stuff yet. That's kind of like where we are right now with crypto. Um, 
if you fast forward 30 years, now everything is powered on the internet. Like your your camera for your like ring bell or on like your door or Instagram or like Facebook or anything that you use, even like the stuff we're doing right now, right? It's powered by the internet. But how many of us actually stop and think about it? Like, wow, this is the internet, like the underlying technology here. I think that's what it'll be in the future with blockchain where everything will be powered by the blockchain but you won't even have to think about the blockchain um, as you're like using those experiences because it'll just improve over time. Onboarding will be very, very simple. You'll have things sort of like created around it to abstract a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to agree. Uh, I think uh, we're probably so early. We, uh, we have no idea. Uh, Brian, I realize I, I didn't let you ask your question about randomness. Yeah. I was just going to ask, I, I, I did mention uh, mentioned adding precompiles on Avalanche to make uh, on-chain randomness like a little bit more secure, and I was just curious how you know randomness is one of the things that's brought up all the time with gaming, especially on-chain gaming. And I was just curious how like how you guys think about it, how you see it evolving over time, and also like outside of just better randomness, like what what other things are you guys looking for? Like what else do you think would make building a game on chain just easier or better yeah uh, for, for me I, I would say just like the the ease of getting random numbers like uh we we uh kind of like spun up our own chain with dfk chain and, and, and like uh, even on harmony uh we're kind of like uh forced into kind of like rolling our own randomness uh and, and which is, is kind of like based off a normal like uh commit reveal pattern um but I, I, I think for new developers coming in, they, they shouldn't have to roll their own. They, they should uh, be able to like uh, basically just have a very cheap, uh, like uh, reliable way of getting those random numbers, and also scalable as well. I mean, we for our, uh, our questing uh, system, like we we may uh, we might re require like 80 different random numbers for a, a group of heroes, and um, I, that's that's been kind of like a, a tremendous growing pains to to get there and do that uh, gas effectively and. Uh, and uh, in a way that that uh, kind of protects the integrity of that of that randomness, and we've learned a lot of lessons along the way. But I I, I think uh, either infrastructure or just kind of like uh, native elements built into the blockchain that they make that just super simple, like like uh, uh, just one line to get as many random numbers as you need would would be amazing. I think we Fox Fox says he got booted by the way, and he can't get back in. Right, we'll uh, we'll get him another invite as soon as we can. Um... One thing that's awesome, though, Magnus. Super, super useful. Yeah, thank you, Magnus. That's uh, uh, yeah. I I think uh, I definitely don't think about it much, and uh, probably a lot of us don't think about it much. But I mean, the role of randomness in uh, in gaming, especially, has got to be huge. And Brian, I'm sure you're with your poker background, um, that uh, has a lot of relevance there as well. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. It's it's a hard topic. It's like weird. You think we take for granted, oh, random numbers are, are so easy, but then there's like there's like different levels of randomness, right? There's like there's there's randomness like uh like good enough for playing a game in your web browser, which is really like pseudo random and not very good. And then there's randomness that's like good enough for things that are like poker and gambling related, where it's like it has to be like unbelievably good or uh, if any bias is found, then, you know, somebody has some massive edge and just exploits like a huge amount of money. And then there's like, like real randomness that's used in like, you know, crazy uh, math and physics and, you know, all of, all of these other things. Um, 
that is like way, 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 way harder and more interesting. And is just like an entirely uh, separate subfield in terms of like how you get something that's even close to, to truly random. Um, so it is a, it is a broad, broad spectrum, but a very interesting topic. Yeah. It's wild to think about. Uh, one thing I did want to hit, uh, I know we've, uh, we've been going for quite a while and I, I don't want to take advantage of you guys' time, time, but uh, um, there was some news uh, this week about Layer Zero and uh, criticism from uh, the founder of Nomad about uh, a so-called critical security vulnerability in Layer Zero. So I'll just uh, I'll, I'll give uh, the background as I understand it, and then you can uh, correct my understanding and maybe uh, uh, comment on it. Um, so Nomad, um, for people who don't know, is uh, is another cross-chain messaging protocol. Um, it uh, suffered a 190 million dollar bridge hack last August. So, uh, I mean, that was how I heard about it for sure. Um, now the timing of this is interesting because there's, uh, there's a Uniswap governance vote coming up, um, where they're going to choose an official, uh, official bridge provider. And so the, the founder of Nomad claims that he was asked by a, uh, one of the voters to audit layer zero's code. Um, and, uh, says he found a, uh, a backdoor, a so-called backdoor, and also that it was being used um, by Layer Zero uh, in a way that uh, that it should not have been. Um, now, as I understand it, Nomad is not currently serving as a bridge, so it's not like in the running for being selected by Uniswap. Um, but I guess the the yeah the claim is that the vulnerability exists and uh, and that it is being used um, maliciously. Uh, now, as I understand it. Um, you guys said that uh, that uh, this so-called vulnerability was well known, and also that it only affects um, apps using the default configurations, so it's easy to avoid. Um, now, do I have all that right? Um, uh, or uh, yeah, if not, please tell me and uh, right, comment. I'm, on I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. I get to rant a little <laughs> bit. I haven't waved my hands enough on this space and kind of kind of yelled. Um, no, so uh, like. Classic, like talking about this as a vulnerability is is honestly absurd. So like, if and I, I wrote a I wrote a long blog post about this two two days after because I just want to like summarize my thoughts long form. But like the way that basically every other messaging system in the world works. So take Nomad, take you know any messaging system that you know that does generic messaging. The way that it works is you have an application, and an application subscribes to the system, right? So you depend on Nomad to tell you who the validators are and how validation happens and everything else that goes into it. So all the parameters in terms of like how a message gets formed, validated, and then, and then sent out on the other side, on the other chain, all live in the system. So the way existing systems worked is the application system would upgrade when, whenever it wanted. And actually this is like, this happened this is how Nomad got hacked, right? So Nomad, with all the applications built on top of it, had no control. Nomad pushed an upgrade for code. The code was bad. There was a bug in it, and it got hacked for 190, 210 million, whatever it was, right? Uh, wormhole, same thing. Pushed bad code, didn't initialize it, put $1.8 billion at risk in a critical exploit. Again, did the same thing. So like, this is a very common design pattern, and this is actually why we built Layer Zero the way that we did, was like, 
no application should have to rely like the trust the surface of trust should not be this other team's multi-sig and like hopefully they're they're they have good practices and hopefully they write good code like uh you know people push too many updates over time that eventually something's going to go wrong and so the whole reason we built layer zero was like okay take out all that parameterization take out the validation library take out who your validators are and allow applications to specify those so layer zero was built in a way that we can publish new validation libraries. So this is like, you know, Nomad pushing code. We can publish new validation libraries, but no application has to use them. So we can never change. And so the problem with the other one is, with the way most systems work, is that they can change your underlying validation library. So your validation works. It's great. It's been working for a year. They push new code, and now you're on this new version, and, and basically you're, you get rugged. Something bad happens, right? So the whole point of layer zero was, you now can point to a specific validation library. Once one is published, it can never be modified and you can never be moved off it. So completely immutable. It's append only. And so every application has the ability to point to each of these specific parameters. So they say, I'm going to use Relayer A, I'm going to use Oracle B, I'm going to use you know, validation library C, and I want to wait 25 block comps. Fine. There's nothing, even if I was, you know, all of layer zero, our only goal was to be malicious. There's nothing we could ever do to the application. Couldn't move them, couldn't change it, couldn't do anything to harm them. And so like that was the big the big revelation around layer zero was like now applications have the ability to control their own security. Now, um, we said some applications don't really care about this. They don't actually want to think about these things. They have no clue any block conversation wait. They don't want to have to think about validation library two years down the road when Merkle trees migrate to Merkle trees and like Merkle proof uh, structures don't work anymore. So like you need to point to a new validation library. All that's true. They just, they just want to build. They just want to build, ship something. Maybe you're just testing something. Maybe you have an application that doesn't really deal with a lot of money. When that's the case, you have the ability to use what's called defaults in layer zero. When you use defaults, you're basically saying layer zero basically chooses what the defaults are. So we have the ability to basically say, all right, relayer A is the default relayer, uh, chain link is the default oracle, you know, the the uh, ULNV2 is the default validation library, and so on. We say this is kind of what we think the best defaults are. Um, now, He's now this is where like he's not wrong. He's not wrong in that if you subscribe to the default, layer zero can change those, which means technically layer zero could do something malicious if they wanted to, right? So that's not wrong. But the crazy part is that is exactly how Nomad works and how it got hacked. That's exactly how every other system works. So like the worst case for layer zero, if you're opting in the defaults, is the best case for every other system. And yet he was describing it as a, a quote unquote critical vulnerability and a backdoor. And yet it is exactly how the system that he built works. And the difference is that layer zero provides applications optionality to not opt into default. If you opt into default or any of these other systems, you're basically saying, you know, I'm delegating the trust over this parameters to some set of admin keys who control this, whatever it is, a multi-sig set of validators, it's whatever it is. And so like now from this, so from this thread going up and, and us sort of going through this process, there's two new things we're doing. One, making it very easy for applications to choose static defaults, which is basically, I want whatever the default settings are right now, because those are probably the best, but I don't want to ever change them unless we want to. I don't want you to be able to auto change them on me. So that's one is like 
slap in the default settings very easily, but can't be changed later on. And the second is we're setting a time lock. So anytime that layer zero were to change the default, so new library, new whatever, there's a seven day time delay. Uh, some of the monitoring services are gonna monitor this. So everyone would be alerted when that happens and everybody will have seven days if they think, um, you know, whatever, if, if somebody says, oh, actually there's a bug in this code or I don't want this change, they can just go and point to things statically themselves. So look, those are the two things that we're doing to, to make this system better. But to describe it in, in any of those terms of backdoor, critical vulnerability, et cetera, is insane because literally it is identical to how every other messaging system works. And that's only in its very, like the worst that you could ever have in layer zero is the best that you get in most of the other places. So uh, it was really ludicrous, unbelievably biased article, um, really, really like obviously side agenda, all of that stuff. Um, but it's good. It's good to talk about these things. It makes us like think through how people use it. Like, yes, we built a way that applications can be max secure. A lot of people are just, they just want to build. They want to be sort of like default lazy and that's fine. We have to give them, make it even easier for them to like protect themselves or, or sort of like have default security in the best possible way. Um, and so we're just making it better and better. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, one thing I, I uh, wanted to ask, to ask about, or I saw, I read um, that, uh, so in your system you have uh, Oracle and Relayer which uh, might uh, sound like those are each one party, but if I'm not mistaken, each of those could refer to a, a massive set of validators. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, Oracle and Relay are basically just an ad hoc set of validators. The Uniswap proposal that's being discussed now is actually for like the Uniswap, you know, really to be this network of, um, of the largest Uniswap delegates, right? So the people are already responsible for passing Uniswap governance decisions. Those are the ones pass, uh, responsible for like securing the message or at least having like veto rights over the messaging. So it could be, you know, one Relay or one Oracle it could be, 10,000 nodes. There's, there's no restriction on it at all. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. We're, uh, we've been going for an hour and a half, so I do want to bring things to a close. Uh, so maybe if we could just go around the horn and uh, each of you, I'd love to hear what you're looking forward to, um, whether it's uh, within DeFi kingdoms, within layer zero, or even uh, outside of those uh, in the rest of DeFi. Um, uh, yeah, let's keep it keep it within crypto. Unless there's really something you're looking forward to outside of that, then love to hear it. Uh, so maybe starting with you, Fox. Oh, all right. Um, let's see if I'll stay on this time. Uh, as I'm over there trying to talk about how awesome like internet is, then the internet stabs me in the back. Uh, basically, I'm super stoked for PvP combat uh, inside of our game. I think that's going to be a huge. Uh, ability to increase the fun and uh, the engagement of like our online interactions. Uh, I would say all of that coupled with online chat and in-game guilds and things like that, that is what will really have this basically get shot into the next level. So for our space in particular, just the social and the competitive uh, aspect of our game will be improving. For the blockchain space in general, I mean, I think it's just there's all kinds of things that are happening that I'm really stoked about. Just owning your own assets, having the ability to do all kinds of things that you want with them on the blockchain, not having to like rely on traditional banks or things like that. There's just so much in the future that this whole space is about to explode. 
Um, with games, I'm excited for Hades 2. I really can't wait for that. And that's it for me. Yes, original Hades was unbelievably good. One of the best games in a very long time. How about you, Magnus? Yeah, so there's a lot of things I'm I'm stoked for this year in, in the Web3 space, but uh, particularly the DeFi kingdoms. So we've got a lot of new systems coming out, like equipment, weapons, uh, more, more utility for our pet NFTs, uh, also building out tournaments and travel in the game, um, as, as well as kind of the, the crown jewel, which is, is going to be PvP. Um, and I'm lo- really looking forward to, to seeing the e- economy emerge around uh, the equipment and weapons and, and everything uh, that's kind of going to be consumed as part of the whole PVP experience. Uh, in terms of the greater crypto space, uh, I'm really stoked uh, to see these these new innovative uh, infrastructure uh, uh, kind of protocols come out, um, and particularly uh, around uh, taxes as well, and and, and see the uh, the user experience uh, evolve and uh, as we bring on that the next wave of uh, of new users. Um, yeah, I, I'm just really looking forward to. Uh, to bring more people in, uh, I, I do think we're still pretty early. For sure. Uh, all right, next, Brian, and then Irene. Yeah, for me on my end, uh, I usually have something I'm like super, super excited about in the space. I don't think I've had like something that I'm just like, you know what, this seems like has really just captivated me. Right now, I'm kind of like playing with everything, touching everything. I, I, I'm waiting for like the new thing that is going to come out. I mean, like, Oh my God, that thing is amazing. Um, I think this year, like there, there rarely been years that that hasn't happened. I don't think it has happened yet this year. So, uh, or in the last year. So I'm waiting, uh, you know, obviously incredibly excited about what we're doing incredibly exciting about like a huge amount of the gaming stuff. That's finally going to be like coming out this year. That's going to progress forward, um, from kind of like priorities, which is awesome. Um, but in general, like, I don't know. I haven't I haven't found the thing that that really really captivates me yet in this like uh technological iteration. So, uh we'll see. I'm sure something something will uh, will grab my eye before the end of the year. I think on my side, uh, I was recently catching up with some of my design friends, friends who work at uh studios like IDO and hearing that they're leaving their web two jobs and moving into web three because they uh finally have come across products that are building with great infrastructure, which then allow for them to create really uh, novel user experiences is particularly cool. Um, I think our in-house design team is is incredible. And the, the Pudgy Penguins bridging experience is a great example of how what was once really clunky can now be really seamless and therefore more accessible to newcomers to the space. And it was a lot of fun to, to hear from a friend of mine who is, is not crypto native that they bought their their very first nft and, and this was a a little pudgy because they they saw it on on my twitter and then uh bridged it and this was all for someone who had never touched anything related to crypto ever and so design is going to be so huge this year and welcoming new talent into the space is uh such a, a breath of fresh air very exciting guys thank you so much for your time thank you this is a lot of fun yeah it's been our pleasure thanks for having us Thanks so much, guys, and thanks for hosting. Thanks, really appreciate it. All right, that was Frisky Fox and Magnus Ironroot from DeFi Kingdoms and Brian Pellegrino and Irene Wu from Layer Zero. 
Uh, for those of you who joined midway, the recording of this space will be posted momentarily and released as a podcast in the coming days on all your favorite podcast platforms. Uh, we do these spaces weekly on all things Web3, so follow us on Twitter at CoinPost underscore global so you don't miss out. Uh, our next episode is going to be with Connext, which is another interoperability protocol, so we're staying on the same theme of cross-chain apps. Uh, look out for details for that, and I will see you there. Uh, one more important announcement. We are hosting a conference in Tokyo this July that will bring together Web3 companies, developers, investors from around the world for two days of incredible sessions and networking. Uh, we'll be dropping more details soon, but it's called WebEx, and it'll be held on July 25 to 26. So we hope to see you here in Tokyo. And of course, we hope to see DeFi Kingdoms and Layer Zero there as well. Lastly, bear in mind that nothing said here is financial advice. Crypto investment is risky and you could lose everything you put in. There are fundamental differences from traditional investment. Now that said, we think this is absolutely the space to be watching. So we hope you're as excited as us to learn and join our community. That's it, folks. Have a GM. GM Radio.